Hello, agents, and welcome to part two of episode 105, Elements. We're just going to jump right back in to where we left off, so let's go. Okay, we're back. Yay, okay. So we left off with that great series of quotes and clips from Dr. Norwood that allowed Jillian and I to talk about cultural appropriation, particularly within the Lenape creation myth that was allegedly, you know, used, but not at all thoughtfully used for this episode. So Dr. Norwood explained that there are many creation myths, And this is none of them. Yeah, and this is none of them, which makes it especially upsetting. We learn that in this fictionalized, appropriated myth, the rock gave the world solidity, so this leads Artie and Lena to conclude that there is an artifact, a Native American artifact, that manipulates solidity. They also have identified that the goal of this week's Big Bad is to gather all four of these elemental artifacts and use them, you know, for the creation and destruction of the whole world. So things are getting pretty real and pretty intense over here. The next scene, (laughs) Artie calls Pete on the Farnsworth. Pete is asleep in the hospital bed. And what I cared about was Pete wakes up and he goes, Mama? (laughs) He's so sweet. He is also probably on morphine or whatever, so that's like makes you loopy and cute. Yeah, like, and like he doesn't feel good and he wants his mama. Yeah, sweet, sweet big man. I know, he's so sweet. And that's not the only time he does that, by the way. He does it in a future episode, too. And is this... You can tell me if it's not. So the Farnsworth is on the other side of the bed and he gets out and is trying to run to it? <laughs> the Farnsworth is... It's not like on the bed I think it's like on something that's across from the bed and he tries to get up and then he realizes he's hooked to an IV and then he's like oh gosh ow and then the IV almost falls over and he grabs it and then he like has to yank the IV out and I have had an IV had my tonsils out it's not easy to rip those things out man they hurt they're so painful and they're in your like flimsy hand skin and then he belly flops onto the bed in a really hilarious way and we love Eddie McClintock he he plays this like really sympathetically but it's also comical yeah it's like i feel so bad for him because it's not it's not a willing belly flop it's a this is what my body needs to do right now (laughs) belly flop Um, yes and we have Artie who is displaying his worst characteristic besides yes like the racism in this episode he he has that same thing where he just doesn't understand sympathy when the job needs to be done like Pete does not feel good and he is a guy who will put aside his own pain and not complain like he got stabbed with his dad's shield in the pilot when he got thrown from a car and he was like I'm fine I'm not going to the hospital so this is the same guy who's like I don't feel good I'm recuperating and already just goes recuperate later go and Pete's like okay it's amazing because Pete yeah, Pete is the person who would get up and go if he thought he was okay. And then when Artie tells him to get up and go, he goes even though he's not okay. Because he's a good guy. And a good agent. And so, this is when we go to 
Jillian's least favorite scene in the hospital cafeteria. So tell us about that, Jill. Okay, so Micah is on a date with... Jeff. <sighs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> that encapsulates my feelings on him. Um, I'm going to say I've been on that date, but obviously I haven't been in that situation. But I've been on a date where someone sort of catches your eye and you think they're cool and then you sit down to talk to them for like more than two seconds and you're like oh what have I done this is so boring like <laughs> there are so many awkward pauses and I kept waiting for Jeff to make it an emotion or an expression or indicate that he's not a freaking robot and he just there was nothing there his money was his personality and it wasn't enough do you think that that's an acting thing because he's saying words that suggest a backstory but I don't really believe the backstory okay and that's either the best acting or the worst acting depending on what the writers intended I just don't think this guy is a good actor man but also the writing itself wasn't I'm not saying it's bad writing but it doesn't it's not designed to make me feel for him my, my actual notes say for some reason I was super uncomfortable with the whole date I just didn't feel any spark at all. It felt very awkward. He's so boring. And the pauses were really long. And then I wrote, ugh. I wrote, ugh, with five A's. <laughs> and um, he said, so what made you join the Secret Service? And she goes, it was either that or prison, which is like a thing that happens in movies all the time. They're like, you can go to prison or you can help us with this. It was a pretty funny joke. And he's like, oh. But you know what I saw in that? Let's, let's celebrate joanne kelly um she makes a joke which is rare for her character and then her beautiful but nervous smile is really sweet as like from her point yes. as a woman who's trying to like have have a date slash dual interrogation session and then the other thing i noticed is that Micah, as a character, doesn't have that, like, big, nervous smile very often. Yeah, she's really trying. It reminded me of Pete's advice. It reminded me of Pete, period. Like, it was something Pete would do. She's like, this works when he breaks the tension with me. Maybe I'll try. But Yeah, and, and he had said, we already commented on it, about um, you're pretty when you smile. And maybe because Jeff is supposed to be really attractive, but I, you know, I don't think he, he plays off that character well enough for us. Not like Ross the Medic where we're really into him. Yeah. You know? He's not, he's just nothing. He's, he's bread. He's wonder bread. And I felt so bad because she doesn't do that kind of thing very often. And she put herself out there. She's really making the effort. And he's, it wasn't even like a horrified expression, which I think would have been better he would have been, and then, because then you could be like, no, you're wrong, and that was at least something. He was just like, oh, well, that's weird, was sort of his whole thing. I wrote the words barf, boring, <laughs> and then, um, but Jill, he says he wants to erase his father's footsteps. I know, I said, poor little rich boy, I just didn't care. It's like, oh, I'm so rich, but I hate how I got it, and I'm just, I just thought, well, be your own man, like, fine, like, because she didn't say anything that he wasn't leaning towards, you know? He he said something about, like, I hate, I'm rich, but I hate how I got it, I think. And she goes, oh, yeah, you mean your father? And he's like, I wish I could erase his footsteps. I'm like, then why did you bring him up on your date? Like, I was just really annoyed. I was just annoyed by all of his choices. 
Or like maybe if you're really opposed to um, cruelly acquired money, don't take the money. Yeah, or just do what you say you're going to do and do all the charity and just stop bringing up the things that you don't want to be associated with. And then Micah stares at him and she says, I'm trying to decide if I'm sitting here with a good guy or a bad guy. And I was like, me too, Micah. I I, I'm just (laughs) or a person at all because he might be an actual robot although isn't this every woman on a date with someone you barely know yeah I'm nodding vigorously I know I have anxiety but this is so actually just like maybe the most useful thing is the allegory of being a woman especially a woman like Micah who is very observant and like cares about figuring a person out and you're on that date and you're trying to figure out if this is like a really sweet guy who you want to date again or if like maybe he's killing people or has horrible ideas about you I think that's totally part of it and I thought that too and the other thing I thought but he's giving her so little on this date that she's sort of just admitted she's defaulting to work like, I'm no longer trying to, like, really get to know you. Now I'm assessing your character. And also, if she's getting more skeptical about the actual date, she's stepping back further and further and just going, like, okay, this is not a good date. Let me get the information so that this is worthwhile. I think what also really bothers me is it could have been a really good date. I liked when we first met him and, you know, he made fun of Pete and made him, like, look at the plaque and then he said he volunteers with kids. And I was like, this is great. Talk more about that. Like, you could be interesting. And because he owned the hospital, like, it's such a classic romantic movie move to rent out the entire restaurant so it's just the two of you and but he does that because he owns the hospital so he's like I've the whole cafeteria is ours except for like the couple doctors that are in the background and he also put a candle on the table which is sweet but it it felt hard to relate to because he didn't do any of it clearly he had someone else do it his whole personality everything that he was trying to cultivate was stuff other people did and he just showed up for he just showed up for that charity thing at the hospital he just showed up at the cafeteria he just showed up at the date he's he thinks he can get everything he wants by just showing up and I think that's a real turnoff for me and you know what else he didn't just make other people do it he made working class people do it yeah he made people who don't have money who work in a cafeteria and it's a hospital cafeteria like I'm glad that we saw doctors in the background eating but like people are there visiting their family they're having a really hard time in their lives they're staying the night Maybe don't close down an entire hospital cafeteria. People need it. Well, right, because I thought it was just it happened to be 3 a.m. and so there was no one there. But as a person who has had a loved one in a hospital, there's people in the cafeteria at 3 a.m. So, like, he might have kicked them out. Especially in New York. Like, there's people everywhere all the time in New York. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, bad date. Luckily, we cut to Pete being awesome. Yes. Pete is in Weaver's apartment. And he's struggling. He's struggling. He's he's not moving around with grace. I mean, it's good acting and good continuity of the character because he is hobbling around that place. He is hobbling around and he's got like nice clothes on, which also, like he's wearing like a, a crisp button down. And I'm like, that is the last thing you want to put on your body after being beat up because you fell out of a car. And had your molecules rearranged. Oh, Pete. Luckily, 
he gets some sort of uh, probably childhood nerd glee <laughs> when he thinks that there's nothing there and then he sees a sculpture. It's a secret panel. He pulls it forward. And here's something I would like to point out. We know that Pete has vibes and that that might be relevant here. This is almost just Pete's instinct. Oh, yeah. Like, he doesn't get a a bad feeling about that room. He looks at a sculpture and is like, oh, well, that's it. Yeah, there's a specific thing that comes over him when he gets a vibe. Not like a cheesy thing, but it's, it's sort of you can see a moment of internal questioning when he gets a vibe of, oh, no. Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely feeling this. And then he goes, this he just walks by and is like, wait a second. No way. Yes. And this is the amazing thing um, is that it is sort of like a you know, like a secret agent movie or something. This is possibly what made his brain think this way. But I also want to point out we just did the Redicus episode. And remember Pete, like his instincts, he cracked open that um, secret panel as well. And so he obviously has uh, something I do not have, which is he's not afraid of breaking stuff. <laughs> um, he just is like, no, you know what? I bet this opens. I also just don't think he's afraid of breaking Jeff's stuff. Oh, he wants to break Jeff's stuff. I totally agree. Also, my one note here is I may not like Jeff, but if I was uber rich, you bet I would have a secret passageway leading to a secret room. That's the dream. It would probably be a library. (laughs) And not a library of things um, which Pete declares bingo mania. I wrote that too. I loved it so much. So funny. And we, I love this. We're getting more of a sense of the voice of the show and phrases like that, which like, I've never heard anyone else say bingo mania, (laughs) but I believe that Pete, who is funny and resourceful would say it. And he's still a little loopy. From meds? Yeah. So it's really funny. We do get some stereotypical flutes as he finds the um, passageway, but we'll talk about what's in the secret passage in a minute. Um, This is where it cuts. My overall note for what we just saw before we looked at any individual thing was I felt really uncomfortable because there were a lot of Native American artifacts, but not warehouse artifacts, just artifacts. The juxtaposition of stuff that was for taking and stuff in that room that did not appear for taking because it wasn't dangerous. It was just an artifact of a culture that still exists and it is out there and that's not yours made me feel really uncomfortable. I don't know which scene it's in, but I'll I'll say it here because it is what happens. Um, Pete declares that it's a lot of artifacts related to the artist Burley. Walter Burley, I think is his name. Mm-hmm. And... That's interesting to me because the layers of culture and potential appropriation are, well, the sculptures are by a non-native person, but there's the the modern art by a non-native person, and there's also native artifacts alongside that stuff, and like, it's more of a research project, and Pete calls it like a shrine to Walter Burley, which is fine but when we look into that room we clearly see native american clothing don't they say that burley was married to a lenape woman i thought they said that yes they do so i got the feeling that he took her stuff yes so that's the thing i don't know if because you could make a thoughtful political comment on a 
non-native person taking a native person's stuff or this does happen people who say like well I can't be racist because my wife or spouse is insert race here but what's really happened is that that person has um exoticized their significant other or they have uh, appropriated their significant other they're attracted to them because they see them as an other and it's actually the worst defense to, to claim that you're being respectful simply because you are a person not of that race or culture who has taken it. Yes, which to be clear is not us saying that interracial love is bad. It's that you need to see each other as people on equal footing and respect each other's cultures, but not take them. Just because you are a married to a Lenape woman does not make you a Lenape person and you need to respect that. Yes, that's really important that you said because obviously interracial relationships are beautiful and important and positive, but all I was trying to say is that if any person, it's the same thing we know as really awful when the person says, I have black friends, you know. If any person is claiming that they can't be ignorant because of some relationship, that is not a defense. Although obviously if you were in a really healthy marriage with a person from a different culture or ethnicity, that would be great and you would learn a lot from them, but you need to respect the things that are not yours. Yeah, and anyone who actually has a friend or spouse or relative of a different race would know better than to use it as an excuse, too. Yes, so it's it's a really complicated thing and we'll get into it also with LaSalle later. So from there, we return to the date where Micah gets a phone call, and luckily this is going to launch her into non-date Micah. You can instantly see she's a lot more comfortable, even though she's mad. She's like, at least I know what to do now. She's in secret service mode. Yeah, the actual exchange, um, she steps away because she thinks Pete's upstairs and calling her, and so she thinks something's wrong. And he's like, I'm in your boyfriend's place. Whatever, Whatever's going on, your boyfriend's neck deep in it. And she goes, well, I'll wrap this up then. And I just, I love that change on her face. And just, you could see on her face, well, nothing lost here. Like, it wasn't like, a, oh, I'm so bummed. It, it wasn't that same disappointment that she had when she found out Ross was married with twins. That was like, oh, this could have gone somewhere. She's just like, well, at least I have an excuse to end this early. <laughs> You know, thank goodness, it's like the the trick of having your friend pretend to fake an emergency. She's actually got a real emergency, and now she can leave her date. Yes. So Weaver has collected everything by the artist Burley, and Micah's tiny, teeny, tiny, beautiful directorial slash acting move is that she goes back to the table. I'm I'm enacting this in front of the podcast microphone. Bravo. She goes <laughs> she goes in front of the table. And I forget her words, but she's like... Oh, she says, she goes, actually, I want to go back to your place. But like, angrily? And he goes, I usually like it when my date says that. And she goes, well, I never like it when my date lies to me. And then she unclicks her holster thing and puts a hand on her gun, which I know as a person who watches a lot of procedurals is like the secret language of like, you are in trouble and I am in charge. And that's the Micah I want to see. Yeah, that was Micah saying, come at me, bro, but like Micah would. Yes. <laughs> um, so this is where we learn that 
Burley was married to a Lenape woman, and the sculptures are a key to a secret underground cave. Because of course they are, I roll. And the directions are hidden in the sculptures. Yes. So this was the other thing I would like to say is that even if there was a Lenape um, story about a secret underground cave, the fact that a person who decidedly by the story we've been told is not native had the key to their sacred ground. Yeah, it made it seem like he married her to get this information that he knew was powerful and then tried to make a map. And like he wasn't like he wasn't really an artist. He was just gross. And that's how I viewed it too, and I think the related thing here that is really damaging and relates to something that our guest um, artifact expert and your passage from earlier uh, from tracks make really clear is what we know to be untrue that native people are often portrayed as dead and gone and this is a big problem with the the Lenape woman who was the source of this information has passed away and is not present and I know that Burley is also dead and not present in the episode too, but it's really just kind of making this all seem far away. And it's not. Yeah. And it's not, and like you said, the fact that this random, maybe not random, he married a Lenape woman, but a random non-native guy had this incredible power over culture that didn't belong to him. Yes. Um, so we cut to... I'm sorry, a scene that I think could have been written better. Oh god, that scene. LaSalle is walk he is walking into Radford's office, and Radford is like, What do you do for me, LaSalle? And LaSalle is like, Exposition mule, let me tell you what I do that I have been doing for you for years. He says, I do geological surveys, sir. And it's like, come on, like I have never written a TV show episode because that is not my genre, but I feel like most anyone who is just starting film school could have done better. Was that too tough? No, it's not too tough. It's so true. That's, um, it's the equivalent of when someone says, what do you mean? Or who are you? Writers shouldn't write that because you can describe it almost any other way better. This is... Like the pilot, something that really makes me question what the network was and was not involved with. So this episode, as we discussed before, the story is by Dana Barata, Jack Kenny, and the teleplay is by Jack Kenny and David Simpkins, who co-wrote the pilot. Now, Dana Barata has worked with Jack Kenny throughout the rest of Warehouse 13. They worked together on uh, Jessica Jones, and David Simpkins worked on the pilot, and Jack Kenny, we know, is a good writer. So all of these writers are better than this. I, I just, I wonder what happened. That's what I was saying is that I feel like the too many cooks in the kitchen was the real culprit where all of these writers are great, but with too many hands on deck and people not, maybe not seeing the things that someone else had written or someone throwing out a draft and someone else editing it with no one else checking. Like, maybe they were just last minute network notes. Because I still feel like that's something all writers would have caught. And then they got a note from a network the day of filming and they were like, we have to change this. Or, you know, they didn't make it so obvious and the network was like, we don't know who this guy LaSalle is. And then they had to throw something in 
You know, that sounds accurate. That sounds really accurate. That sounds like a network thinking that the viewers are dumber than they are sort of issue. Yeah. So, regardless, we continue with LaSalle's scene. Conveniently, he's wearing a bracelet, the water bracelet. And um, we learn that Burley was his uncle, and thus LaSalle is a Lenape person. Or which leads us to understand that the Lenape wife, who has not been included, had a brother or sister or somebody um, who is also not named. Like, all of the Native people don't have names. Burley, the white guy, is the only one with a name, which really bothers me. That's so important, yes. Uh, LaSalle has a name, but it's all th- it's all coming together really fast and kind of choppily written. He's got a bracelet on, and I know that Walter Burley was the artist who was making modern art and not Lenape art, but the bracelet that LaSalle is wearing has runic writing on it. Mm-hmm. But, like, it's it's clearly legible to us with a few runic-looking letters in it. There were native glyphs, but I don't really know what they are or enough to say if those are accurate. And to my knowledge, it looks very Germanic. I mean, I, I know Germanic languages. I don't know Lenape languages, but... It was all wrong. It was just wrong. Yes. LaSalle has the key to a native secret, which is slightly better because he is a native person, but it's still bad because the key was given to him by a non-native savior figure who is probably terrible. And then taken by an older rich white man. It's all bad. Just taken directly from him, who then kills him. Spoiler alert, that's what happens. And and also, in the midst of all of this, I don't know why I'm seizing on this. Why? It, it's just, it's like the cherry on top of a crap Sunday. The writing... <laughs> I wrote it down because it was so bad. He goes, water, rock, wind, that's helpful. Now I know how to arrange the sculptures. I was like, that is the most on-the-nose writing that you could possibly do. And that's what I was going to say. Why would Burley make the key so easy to decipher? I mean, and even if he did make it that easy, why would you say out loud to yourself, now I know how to arrange the sculptures. I Here you go, audience. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't. The thing is, again, the audience would know when he says water, rock, fire, when he puts, when he says the words in the right order and then rushes over to the sculptures, the audience would know that that's what he has learned. We don't need him to villain monologue and that's what i wrote too i wrote he's villain monologuing and we don't need to know that that's what he's doing all we need to know is that he figured something out and then see him put the pieces together we're gonna figure out what it means later anyway yeah can we move past this scene because he shoves him into a wall and it's terrible and now we can stop talking about him i'm sorry i hate him okay i know you hate him oh sorry but i do i do think that because we don't hate lacelle I do like LaSalle. LaSalle dies. Yeah. Real fast and in a horrible way because we know that the molecule thing for ter- was terrible for Pete. We understand that they're in a very tall building. And, oh, I didn't write down the line, but it's like, um, I know. It's like a present tense verb. And then the guy goes, you knew. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah. Like, 
he changes it to a past tense verb after he's killed the guy. And I was like, who murders someone? Because this is what that is. It's straight up murder. He straight up murders a native person. Let's just break it down. He straight up murders a native person in order to take artifacts from their culture and then use their sacred story, supposedly, even though it's not a real story, to achieve his own goals of power. It's the worst possible thing. But here's the thing. The only silver lining is that that is an accurate allegory for colonialism. Yeah. Like the colonization of native land in early American history. But it's not enough of a commentary. I was just going to say that what I wonder is that if, if what was more in line with what the writers had hoped to achieve was an actual commentary on white men taking the land and the artifacts from native people, but what happened with all the rewrites was that that got obscured. And so what happens is we get that narrative where white men are being terrible, but we don't get the obvious social or political commentary on why that's terrible. And we also critically, I mean, it's good for us to know that that's terrible and that this guy is the villain. Like we understand that, but we're missing native voices and native faces and native names and native perspectives. And that's what makes it really cringy, especially in 2019, looking back, you know? Yeah, I completely know. And I think, I think you hit the nail on the head because when you don't have the native voices giving the commentary it's just retelling the narrative even if it's the bad guy it's not it's still just repeating the narrative that exists maintaining a problematic narrative is inherently a bad choice we know that what happened was bad but that's not enough the the way to act responsibly in return is to listen to the people whose voices were not historically heard and that's not what happens here. And they make it seem like you can't listen to the voices. Yes, you can't listen to the voices because in this TV show, the voices are dead. We had LaSalle, um, and now he's dead too. And again, there's not even, like, no one mourns the loss of LaSalle. He's not treated as a valuable contributor or a valuable character. He was an exposition dump or a means to an end. And now he's gone. It sucks. Yeah, we mourn you, Lacelle. Um, so <laughs> fortunately, we can move past this now. So do you want to take it or do you want me to keep going? Um, I will take it because I'm so excited to move on. We're back in the secret room of horrors, which is what I've decided to call it. Ugh. Pete discovers the same phrase as something that Radburn said on another object. He makes a Tony Orlando reference that I don't understand. I don't either. Um, but I'll, I'll look it up for you and I'll put it in the show notes, guys. And, oh yeah, then Artie makes a huge linguistic leap, which makes sense if it's Buffy and they're talking about whatever language they invent that no one speaks anymore, but people in the show speak. But this is a real language that they're talking about. And Pete says something about finding something with the word creation in it. And Artie responds, creation and destruction, as if it has a dual meaning. And I was like, you know nothing about this language. What makes you think you know that has a double meaning? Yeah, Artie has clearly demonstrated that he does not know this language. And I don't either, so I can't say whether this is true or not. But it's just Artie somehow having information that he didn't have. I don't know. Yeah, and I just wrote... Okay, that's a big leap, but whatever. 
And then finally, I never thought I'd be excited to see him, but I'm just glad for this movement of story to end. Jeff walks in and Pete already, like you can see him gearing up to be ready to fight. Yeah. But he's still so tired and so hurt. And I do like what Jeff says. He just is like, no, she's already she's already got me covered. Like, you don't need to do anything. I'm already in trouble. And Michael <laughs> walks in behind him, which I thought was really funny. He's like, okay, well, at least thanks for not making Pete work too hard. Yeah. Um, and then Pete references my favorite childhood show, I Love Lucy. He just goes, Lucy, you got some explaining to do. It's cute. It's good. It's so cute. Like we've said before, we love the character of Pete and these kinds of references and this sense of humor is what we love and what becomes more and more prominent in his character. And here's what I will say for the inclusion of Jeff, and I don't think this is intentional. I want to be real clear about this, but Jeff is so dull that seeing Pete and like having his humor is so extra welcome at this moment. Yes. So, meanwhile, dawn is rising, and Radford, who does not have this truth is in the dawn um, explanation, sees that those red crystals in the sculptures are reflecting light, and that's when he realizes that it's a map, which is a really cool concept visually for those sculptures to come together. He arranges them. And the sun shines through, makes a map of Manhattan, pointing out the location of the cave. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it felt a little rushed. He, like, figured it out and, like, what that shadow shape meant too quickly. But I didn't care because I wanted it to be over. So when he lined up the sculptures, there was, like, a red stone at the top of each of the sculptures. And it sort of was, like, an X marks the spot. Like, so here's the map and then there's the point at the map that you need to go because that's where the cave is. And there were many red stones, but he just took he just took one of them and left. He like took it off the sculpture. He took one so that the red dot would disappear. Um, I'm not a physicist, but I feel like you'd have to take more than one for the red dot to entirely disappear. I don't think you need to be a physicist to know that a red light is still going to be a red light if it passes through a transparent red object. I mean, like, yeah. So there, there are still transparent red objects for it to pass through. I don't really understand what happened. He's just being true to his character, but we don't need that. We already know he's a destroyer of culture and art. I think part of what makes me really uncomfortable with this character and this whole story is that, yes, he's incredibly terrible. He's about as terrible as a character like that can be, but I don't feel he's written to be. I feel like they just wrote a villain and we're like, eh. But they weren't like, let's make a statement with him. It was just like, here's what it is. Like, it it feels like they didn't have a sense of how bad everything he was doing actually is. It's like the battle of the bad white guys, right? Yeah. That's all it is. The battle of the, sorry, the battle of the bad rich white guys. Yeah, no matter who wins, it doesn't really matter because no native voices get highlighted. And spoiler alert for the end of the episode, but I'd rather say it now so it's less of a downer. Another piece of native culture ends up in the warehouse, protected by more white people. And Mrs. Frederick. But she's not native. And it's a, pr- it's a problem. Like, no one wins. And this is what we mentioned earlier, is that we feel less bad when they take a 
French or British or ancient Greek artifact. Our cultures are more intertwined and there's more of an even exchange between those cultures and histories. There's not an even exchange between native and European and Eurocentric cultures. It's just taking. Oh, so beautifully said, Jill. So this is, uh, you know, a cut. And then luckily we get to see Claudia as a ray of sunshine. <laughs> and she says, knock, knock, and Artie jumps out of his skin. It's amazing. First of all, his, his response to knock, knock is perfect. But second of all, it made me think that when she was being the villain and writing knock, knock on the electrical screen, that she was actually just being herself. That she enters, she enters a room by saying knock, knock. Because she's a, a clever, you know, early 20-year-old. And uh, you always knock first. Yeah, I love it. So she comes in, and this happens really fast. I mean, she is a genius, and I will allow that, that she, if anyone could do it this fast, it would be her. But she sees and hears simultaneously what Artie is doing and what Pete and Micah are saying. And then... The first thing that I thought was cool is she was like, have you run it against magnetic ley lines? And I was like, oh, that would be a neat twist. I knew you would call that out. But that's not the answer. I, well, it, it sort of is. The subways are the answer. The ley lines is just her jumping in and being smart. Didn't you say when Victorians were building like public transport and roads and stuff, they built along these things and then people kept building other things on top of those things because that's just where the structures were. So that's what I was thinking. I thought the subways were on the ley lines because of that. So what you're thinking of, which is true, is telegraph wires. Yeah. So entire cities and structures and in a majorly colonial way, um, like the way that we still get our fiber optic cables and internet is all still just building over the telegraph lines over and over. Which means that, fun fact, Australia, New Zealand have the worst internet in the world because at the time when the telegraph lines were built, they were penal colonies and they were really treated badly. So no one needed to telegraph over there. You needed like one prison guard or whoever. You didn't need a million transoceanic cables. So, yes, that's true, but it's a different thing. If these things are shoved together, it's because the writers got just as confused as I did by those things. Because they clearly didn't do their research on any part of history for this episode. Yes. And so the the subways is helpful because there are obviously maps of New York subways and this allows them to find like the spot that hasn't been dug up. Um, Claudia does make the comment like a secret underground cave in Manhattan obviously commenting on the implausibility of that but they find it and claudia is awesome so that happens i also just because we don't talk a lot about what we liked in this episode i do like how she ignores artie he she he has a map and he she just takes it from him and and he's like hey and she's like shush shush, shush. and i just I just like how she sees herself as an equal, even if no one else does yet. And going back to the chess game from earlier, she knows Artie has the first half of the information and he needs his counterpart. Like, she is his other half. Like, his inner child is way too jaded to still be a part of him. But Claudia comes in and takes the place of his inner child and his 
his, you know, yin to his yang or what have you. He, she's his editor. Ah! She cuts out all of the extra stuff that he doesn't need and helps him get to the point and get to where he needs to be. I love it. Brilliantly said. Um, and this takes us to Radford's construction area. And this is interesting to me because they worked so hard to acquire these sculptures to find the location, but apparently they were digging in the right spot the whole time. That sort of helps with something earlier, though, because he lined up the map and he was like, oh, I know this is a map. I know exactly where this is. I'm going to find the exact place on the map and then, okay, go there. There's a lot of intercutting. And Pete says, as we see it, that Radburn has been starting construction projects all over the city oh. because he has an idea of where they might be. So it makes sense if he's been looking at a lot of maps and looking at a lot of different construction sites, he would be like, oh, okay, this one, we're going to go to this one. Thank you. I missed that. So that makes much more sense. Um, there is also another, um, the exposition construction worker, who's like, well, sir, if you're looking for a surgical, surgical blow, um, and I'm not a construction worker or contractor, so maybe that's a real term. Um, but there's a guy who is just totally ready to do whatever. I mean, this is true. The, the construction worker is ready to do whatever the big boss man with the money says. So the construction crew is there. Um, they're going to blow this land up, but they're not going to damage anything. They're using science to do that. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So... Radburn walks through the cave walls with his, not his, with his, not his cloak. <laughs> yes. With the cloak that belongs to the people he has constantly been killing. Um, and he goes, it's true. It's all true. Which is so dumb. Like, aside from it being such a cliche line, of course it's true, you dummy. You've been walking <laughs> through walls. What did you think this was leading to? Can I bleep this so that it says, of course it's true, you dumb That's how I felt. Yeah. That's... In fact, I can say it. Of course it's true, you d bag. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's a real thing to bleep. <laughs> and then, and then. Woo, I'm getting excited. And then, <laughs> as if we don't know what the elements are, by now when they've said it and showed it to us a thousand times. Or again, as Dr. Norwood said, the elements, earth, air, fire, water, they're, they're shared by many rock. cultures. And this one is rock for whatever rock. reason. Shared by many cultures. We get it. We get it. The title is elements, okay? It's not something really subtle and well-written like magnetism, but he says, he lists the thing as he looks at it. And it's like the water of eternal life. And it's like, we've seen Indiana Jones. We know what the mysterious bowl of water is. Everyone knows what it is. And like, I get that it's the water of eternal life and it never goes bad. But like still, real old water just conveniently sitting there unevaporated in a bowl. Yeah. Even if it's mystical. Well, and then the thing that is visually cool, but again, not that it's okay, is that the arrow that holds the power of nature is floating. So there is clearly a magical element at work, but he finds the elemental, I don't know, what we, I don't have a non-grad school word. He finds the elemental, like, reifications. What is the word? Objects, artifacts, 
symbols the the physical symbols yes that's what the word i said meant it's just a stupid word um, <laughs> like gleans gleans <laughs> he gleans with his rich man brain what is happening <laughs> um, okay but luckily pete micah and jeff weaver are not far behind and they again run past a construction worker who has like adr voice that says oh he's down there but i'm getting out of here which is silly yeah but they get again this is okay because it's how television works they get the information they go to where he is and what we know as fans is that when their real guns are drawn that's when stuff is on the line yeah, so they don't have a Tesla. They know that this guy is awful and they're gonna stop him because what he's gonna do is awful. Yeah. So they run into the blast site and he is continuing to villain monologue where he says, this is what I was meant to do. Um, I do like Pete and Micah's response, which is nutbag, the nuttiest. Yeah. Because they're right. But again, we need more commentary on how how awful it is to say this is what I was meant to do. You, sir, were not meant to take ownership of these indigenous artifacts. That is not at all okay. Yeah, for all the reasons we just said, it's upsetting. There's nothing more to say about it. I'll just talk about the physical stuff that's happening. As he's touching each thing, the world and his physical form is affected in a different way storm clouds start to gather earthquakes start happening uh pete and micah get in because an earthquake is happening and part of the cave wall falls down Mm -hmm. so they're just able to walk right through no cloak needed (laughs) i wrote radburn monologues boringly but in a nice baritone i did i didn't want to take two i don't want to spend the entire time just criticizing him for all i know the actor could be a lovely person i don't know he has a nice voice I'll give him that. His voice is okay. Yada yada, there's a fight. It's not worth mentioning because nothing really interesting happens in it. uh, Except and until when Pete is able to grab the arrow after Radburn has grabbed a stone and got what I call a fire hand. You were saying that Pete does this amazing thing where he takes an arrow and like hand to hand, you know, law enforcement does get into fist fights and they also shoot to kill but killing someone with your bare hands like pete kills this guy with we need to note a native american artifact which is i think the very very small gesture that is made is that a native person does not get to share their story or get to protect their culture in this episode, which is awful that white people do it. I wish it was LaSalle instead of Pete. Yeah, but they killed LaSalle. I know. Yes, I wish it was LaSalle, but again, I also don't because obviously when we speak to expert uh, artifact experts who are indigenous people, they don't want violence or death. They I know. You know, that that would not be a great message either. There is no good way to deal with this. Yeah. I guess I guess I'm just saying if nothing else in the episode was changed, because in reality I want almost every part of the episode changed, if nothing else in the episode was changed, I wish it could have been Lucelle. Because at least it would have been an action of 
some form of justice. But I like Pete. I like that Pete saved the day and that he stopped the baddest of bad guys. It's not anything against that. It's just... It's the way that the episode was written. A white person had to be the savior. And I will say, too, that Weaver says the right thing when he says, it's not for us. These things are not for us. Weaver is correct. And that is a good ally recognition to say this is not for us. But the fact is, if you really believed that, Weaver, perhaps buying up the native artifacts was not the way to do it. Maybe if you went to a native nation in this fictional universe, that nation would have defenses in place, right? Yeah, or at least they would know how to handle whatever mystical power they're saying these fictional things have. You know, I think I just figured out the root of the feeling of the badness. We've talked about the cultural and intellectual reasons why this is bad but i think the feeling of the badness is because of how parasitic it feels it's everything is about conquering just like pete said in the beginning but not not just the bad guy conquering the good guy too they're overtaking everything around them whether it's theirs or not and claiming it as their own yeah you're right good talk <laughs> thanks Ugh. I want that printed on shirts. When we have merch, we're just going to have good talk, good talk. Um, so then finally, day is saved. We all feel a little worse for wear after. And we're back in the warehouse. Artie is alone after, she, by the way, she earlier said that she was going to Vegas and then just disappeared. And we were left to wonder, is she coming back? Or did she just decide, I'm going to go be a gambler now? We just don't know. Uh-huh. Yeah, it seemed like she might have just left because she felt underappreciated. But then we get another knock-knock and Artie jumps out of his skin again. It's amazing. So good. Good callback. And he basically says something like, oh, but Vegas. And she goes, just some pocket money and jingles like a purse full of coinage. And he's very pleased with her. And then he just looks at her and says, shouldn't you be in college or something? Be with people your own age? And she goes, I'm not my own age, which is so true and so self-aware. She needs to be where she's challenged and she needs to be around people, but around people who get her. Mm-hmm. And we talked about before about how she spent her very young years taking these steps to find her brother. So you're, you know, she is not her own age and she is... I, as a college educator, believe in what college has to offer, but she has learned a lot of that already because of the research she did. I mean, she basically did a PhD. And because of how she grew up. Before she lost Josh, emotionally she had to grow up very fast because her parents died and she had to reorganize her whole life and what her family structure meant to her and how to live within that. And then intellectually had to grow up very fast because her brother in college isn't going to be able to support a million activities. She had Girl Scouts, sure, but we don't have a sense that she did much of anything else. And most of her free time was spent either with him at the university or with him when he was studying. And we know that because of how well she knows his research, even from the young ages and the flashbacks that we get. Yeah. So, I mean, she's been in college most of her life absorbing information. So the cutest thing is that 
you know, she is returned and they are kind of pretending like maybe she's not allowed to stay. And she just gives him this cute, sad face and waits for him. And then he says, you up for it? Yes. And then she says, are you? And she does what I do, which is she like flails and gets real excited. And it's just. But then Claudia calls Artie a geezer and we see the first genuine smile we've ever seen from Artie. He loves her like a daughter, I mean. It's a beautiful thing. And it's perfect because you know what I love about, again, Alison Scaliotis or the blocking or her physical movement, whichever it is, she kind of, to, to pick up the movement, like metaphorically, to show that this is the start of a relationship that's going to move forward and be important, she moves around to the chess table and takes the piece up of a fresh chess game. It's obviously, well, if you play chess, it's obviously laid out fresh. Yeah. And she puts the first piece out. And, you know, they are starting a new relationship and a new chapter. And we, as viewers of Warehouse 13, are starting a new chapter where this strong female scientist has been added to the cast, which is really important regarding what we discussed in episode 103 with the Bechdel test. And, you know, a very feminist show started off with more male characters and adds more and more women as we go. Which is beautiful. And I love this show. I love Claudia. I love that she pushes Artie forward. Yeah. And also the theme of, I just want to point out the motif rather. The motif of chess is going to be really important. Oh, Jillian. <laughs> yeah, in the arc of the next few episodes. When Claudia moves the chess pieces, it's good forward momentum. And when Artie moves the chess pieces, it's dangerous. Oh, Jillian, you're so smart. I wish I could be your best friend all over again. Wait a minute! Wait a minute! You are my best friend! Goal achieved. (laughs) So the only thing that we had, that we decided for me that I needed to wrap up with, is a bit more information about the woman who we shared a reading from at the beginning of the episode. Yes, thank you. Her name, according to my ability to pronounce it, is Louise Erdrich. I will spell it out, E-R-D-R-I-C-H. I am sorry if I have mispronounced the ch. Uh, she is an Anishinaabe woman who, <laughs> fun fact, went to Dartmouth College. Hey, Pete. <laughs> hey! Yes, um, she is more specifically than Anishinaabe, which is a large federally recognized tribe. She is of the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa Indians. Uh, Anishinaabe peoples are not Lenape peoples, but they are both in the Algonquin native group. I am not an expert in all of the many different cultures that reside within that group. I just want to say that there is a differentiation between Lenape and Anishinaabe, but they do share some important histories and there is a cultural exchange there. And also, I'm not super familiar with the native tribes of South Dakota, but the Anishinaabe, among other places, they have lands in North Dakota, which is not that far from South Dakota, where the warehouse is. Tracks is set in North Dakota 
in the early 1900s and this book is called tracks it is part of a series of books but it is the one that i recommend you read as a standalone novel it's a very very beautiful and moving story we on this podcast really want to do all we can to highlight intersectional feminist voices and i can't think of a better example to highlight than louise erdrich she is not only a woman she is a native woman she is an accomplished author and we saw so much destructive retelling and fabrication of native history done by white people in this episode that i really really encourage you if you want to know what a really beautiful magical realist story told from the perspective of a native person in their own words you should read this book it is one of the best books i've ever read for any reason and it's extraordinarily relevant to this episode even though it is not a lenape story yes thank you so much jillian and um i would also like to add that at the end of our podcast we always plug our patreon or i do but instead of that what I would like to ask is that if you have money or resources to donate, um, Dr. Norwood provided a list of Lenape nonprofits that you could donate to. They're all, you know, tax deductible, 501c3 and everything. So I will include the clip here so that you can get that information. And of course, they will also be uh, links on the show notes. My tribe has uh, two nonprofits that do take donations. One is dedicated to social services and the other is dedicated to economic development. Both are 501c3 organizations and one is Manticoke Lenny Lenape Indians of New Jersey and the other is NLT Community Development Corporation. Both uh, can be reached through our tribe and uh, our tribal uh, website is manticoke-lenapetribalnation.org. There's also a GoFundMe presence, and off the top of my head, I cannot recall, but I'm sure if you go to the GoFundMe, if you, search, if you search it, you'll find us. And we are very happy to receive donations to support the programs that we have for our people and the economic development efforts. So that is it for us, and thank you so much for listening and, um, you know, learning from a difficult episode of television with us. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time, agents. Great, you're still here. So we've finished our discussion of the television show, but I wanted to do something special, as I've mentioned on our social media and on our website for this episode, because of the cultural appropriation that happens and because it's such a rare opportunity to actually get to ask a person of a misrepresented culture to set the record straight and to share their perspective and just generously provide knowledge to us. Um, The conversation that I had with Dr. Norwood was so, so moving to me because it forced me to confront my own ignorance and even trying to be a good ally, you're going to make mistakes and there's going to be things that you don't know. And so for all the people who don't get to have this conversation and have this confrontation, um, you know, if you're not a native 
or indigenous person and then you have to kind of educate yourself a little better I think it's really beneficial to hear the whole interview and again I take responsibility for any imperfect um, moves that I made or things that I said I was just trying my best and I think that that's the way that we can learn from this experience so please stay tuned you've probably only heard about 20% of this it was a half hour long interview and the context will also help and hearing the questions that I asked that yielded the particular explanations that Dr. Norwood provided is also going to be incredibly helpful. Um, lastly, because I am an educator in the university and college scene, I think it's incredibly important that if anyone is ever, you know, writing a paper or doing a report and they want to cite this interview, that they have the complete thing um, and hopefully someday uh, we can get it transcribed and really put it out there so that anyone who really learned from Dr. Norwood can cite their experiences and refer other people to what he had to say to us. So without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and just play the whole thing here. Again, you may feel the urge to turn off the podcast now, but I really, really hope that by including it at this point, you will stay tuned and again, take this awesome opportunity to learn more about the Lenape people. Thanks so much. Here goes. All right. Can you still hear me? Yes, I can. Excellent. So thank you so much. Um, as I mentioned, I just have a few questions that are related to a TV show that mentions the Lenape people without really, I think, um, consulting them. So your uh, generosity is so much appreciated. My first thing is just if you could introduce yourself. Uh, you were introduced to me as a tribal historian, uh, but I don't know how you would describe yourself. Oh, okay. Uh, well, uh, my name is uh, Dr. John Norwood, and I uh, am a member of the Tribal Council of the Nanticoke Lenny Lenape Tribal Nation and also the Principal Justice of that tribe's Supreme Court. Uh, I am a historian among my people. Um, and have done research into the tribe's history. Um, I also represent the tribe at national functions as a delegate to the National Congress of American Indians. Uh, and I serve as the, the general secretary for the Alliance of Colonial Era Tribes, which is an organization of tribes that have colonial treaties, colonial uh, uh, land grants and dealings, uh, and are on the eastern and southern coast of the United States. Wonderful. Um, thank you so much. So uh, that actually does connect to one of my my first two questions. Um, so the the more basic question is just uh, kind of who are the Lenape people, and not just in the past because that seems to be the fictional narrative that we're we're given, but currently, presently, um, you know, anything you would say to describe. The Lenape are the are called the grandfathers or the ancient ones uh, because there are so many tribes, uh, Algonquian-speaking tribes, that uh, whose history comes from us. They view themselves as descending from us, and our own history, our own legends, speak of that descent. Interestingly enough, uh, the Nanticoke are one of the tribes that came from the Lenape, and then during the uh, colonial period, many rejoined the Lenape. Uh, my tribe uh, is from the Delaware Bay region, 
uh, near the southern border of the Lenape territory and the northern border of the Nanticoke territory, and our families have been intermarrying for many generations, a couple of hundred years at least. Um, the Lenape territory extends from southwestern Connecticut, southeastern New York, uh, all of New Jersey, uh, the eastern portion of Pennsylvania along the Delaware River, down into northern Delaware, swooping into Cape Henlopen. And um, around, we, we are a tribe of first contact. Uh, so many uh, settlements were in our territory uh, as early as the 1600s, settlements of European colonists. Uh, we received and uh, had struggles with the Dutch, we, uh, the Swedes, uh, set up their new Sweden colony in our territory, and we have a continuing relationship with them. And then finally, the British. Uh, by about 1740, um, the majority of Lenape people were pushed westward. Uh, those of us who remained, uh, remained in New Jersey in small clusters. Those that were pushed west and eventually, and some eventually north wound up uh, out in Oklahoma. There are Lenape tribes in Oklahoma, and because of their dealings during that migration with the United States government and the, and the uh, uh, at the time, Department of, of War, pushing and pushing on them, they are federally uh, acknowledged tribes. Those that went north wound up, uh, there are some of our people that are in Wisconsin that are part of the Stockbridge community up there, and then many wound up in Canada, and there are Lenape communities in Canada. Uh, the British called us Delaware. Those of us who stayed in New Jersey never embraced the name. Some who migrated away did and also called themselves Delaware. Okay. Uh, thank you. And that relates to one of the specific references in the television show that we discussed, which uh, does mention that uh, the basically city of Manhattan or region of Manhattan um, was I, I suppose, taken um, by seventeenth century uh, colonists. Is mm -hmm. that does that sound about true? That that it would have been that early on. And do you know what that interaction yeah. was? Yes. Well, you know, um, uh, New Amsterdam, the Dutch um, uh, had a trading post and set up a small settlement in uh, Manhattan, and. Um, uh, we did trade with them. However, it was a tenuous relationship and often hostile. Um, they also had uh, outposts and settlements uh, moving further south into Lenape territory. Uh, one famous one, uh, Swanendale down in uh, Delaware uh, near Cape Henlopen, uh, we uh, actually wound up uh, going into battle with that, with the fort that was set up there and burned it to the ground over um, some uh, difficulties that we were having with, with them there. Our relationship with the Dutch was uh, often, it, it cycled between trading and hostility. Um, and the, the old tale about us selling Manhattan is really told from a Western perspective. The fact of the matter is that traditionally our people never saw the land as something you could buy or sell because it was owned by the creator, and we possessed it. We were the stewards and trustees of it, but the creator, actually, it all belonged to him. And so when deals were struck for the use of lands, 
it was with the understanding that we would remain sovereign over it, but we were sharing it with the colonists to be able to live within our territory um, under the un- with the understanding that that it was still our ter- territory. Obviously, uh, European colonists, when they came, came with a European or Western understanding of land tenure, and they assumed that, you know, what they gave us, which we viewed as honor gifts, indicating that they were going to be in a relationship of sharing, um, they assumed it meant that they owned it, and they began to restrict our movement on it, uh, which was never our understanding or our way, and it led to a lot of conflict. Uh, moreover, that relationship of sharing from our perspective was renewed regularly by uh, gift-giving diplomacy, uh, something that the Europeans didn't understand. But given that it was our land, it should have been our ways that were adopted, but they were not. Absolutely, and that completely answers my question because, as I uh, mentioned, I, I was trying to research and learn these things, but they were all told from the colonial viewpoint, and that did not seem <laughs> did not seem quite right. So you've mentioned um, the creator just now, and this is one of the myths that came up in our uh, TV show, but was not really specifically um, talked about or explained. So would you mind uh, sharing with me kind of the basics of the Lenape creation myth? Well, actually, uh, there are there are a couple. Um, the 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 um, northern Lenape, also called the Muncie, uh, that they, uh, an ancient myth that had been recorded and, and was um, often told was uh, that they came up from out of the ground. Um, and uh, uh, another story related to it uh, speaks of the, of the first man and woman actually coming from a tree. What, what all of the um, stories have in common, however, is that ultimately the land itself is on the back of a great turtle. And uh, for the southern uh, Unami um, division within the Lenape family, the story of the great turtle uh, had, is a, it's, a, it's a long and involved story, but it, it essentially is that uh, the uh, uh, some land from the bottom of the sea, some earth from the bottom of the sea, was placed on the back of the turtle and it began to grow. And all of North America is on the back of this turtle. And the people, uh, relating once again to this story of the tree, uh, grew from the back of the turtle and all of the creatures on it. And it's an understanding that the entire uh, land that we live on is living and all the creatures on it are, are related to one another. In brief, that's the story. It's far more detailed than that. But, um, and many tribes across North America share that a very similar story and similar values with the land being on the back of the great turtle, so much so that uh, many tribes simply refer to North America as Turtle Island. Wow. Thank you so much. That's uh, something I have not heard but uh, really am excited to know. Um, I have a related question to this, and uh, it may absolutely not be true, but our TV show suggests that the elements are important to the Lenape people, and uh, I'm not sure if these elements like earth, air, uh, fire, water are 
are a native idea or if that's a, like an Asian or a European idea or if that's something a lot of cultures share. So would you shed any of, light? Yeah, I think a lot of cultures share it. You're, you're, there are many indigenous cultures around the world that share similar perspectives and values. And, and, and the more that I am exposed, uh, and I have very little exposure, but I am becoming more exposed, to the many uh, other indigenous cultures, one of the things that always surprises me is how much we have in common, not only in our understandings and relationship with the natural world, but even with the way we have suffered um, through colonization. Uh, but, uh, for example, many cultures have um, certain understandings relating to the cardinal directions of north, south, east, and west, and it works into their spiritual values. That's very common in, in uh, North America among the indigenous people. Um, the uh, properties of fire, water, air, land, they are also important and work into uh, many of the stories and cultural and spiritual values. There is uh, a sacredness. There are ceremonies that deal and utilize fire and water and and so there is an understanding of that also. Um, I, I don't I, because I didn't see the show. I don't know how they explained the use, so I can't say that they that that this particular television show represented Lenape values with these things legitimately. But certainly, they do work into our values and our cultural understandings. Certainly, and that that seems to be my uh, suspicion is that they they had a surface level idea uh, of some cultural, you know, values, but from what I have seen, didn't consult anybody or get any specific kind of representation um, per se. Um, the, the other, other issue, I'm oh, sorry, sorry. but Go I was going to say that the, the other issue that we have though is that um, so many people rely on um, kind of a pan-Indian understanding of culture, uh, you know, and when I say pan-Indian, I mean cultural traditions that are shared among many different uh, tribes, but um, are, some of them are not ancient. Uh, they, they uh, among, among every tribe. Over the past, I'd say, maybe 75 years or so, maybe a little longer, uh, there's been the, the, the rise of uh, a powwow culture in trying to reaffirm native ways of uh, the, the powwow circuit, which allows different tribes to come together celebrating uh, Native culture, um, began and actually it was, it was restarted. It's an ancient thing that started that actually is, a, is an Eastern tribal tradition. But the modern powwow um, beca became popularized again in the West and came back East. And with it came a, a lot of traditions and stories that weren't necessarily eastern, weren't necessarily from the extreme western coast, but was almost a hodgepodge with um, various cultural elements coming together in it. So, and people that simply know the powwow culture, of many who are non-native, think that that's Indian culture, and it's not. It's kind of like sharing at, a, at the United Nations, where individual tribes may have very different views of, and very different practices. Absolutely. So, yeah, I think that, that it's very easy for somebody to, it's kind of like the TP thing. Every time you see somebody portraying 
an American uh, Indian uh, tribal uh, regalia, you you often see the Western Plains uh, headdress and them living in a teepee, even if they're here in New Jersey. We never had either. Hmm. Um, our our homes were were wigwams and longhouses, and we did not have the big Western Plains headdress. If we had feathered headdresses, uh, they they tended to be upright feathers, and it it was part uh, influenced by the terrain we were in. That big Western headdress would have gotten caught up in branches and everything else out here in the woodlands. Huh, that absolutely makes sense and actually uh, connects with a scholar of indigenous Mexico who I just recently spoke to and kind of said the same thing, that all of these cultures in Mexico were lumped together mm-hmm. um, with this kind of Aztec imagery that only represented one specific point of view rather than the diversity of, of those places. That is what um, tends to happen, yeah. Yeah, so I just have one more story, and this is the one um, that was specifically mentioned in our television show called The Man They Cannot Hold. And in the television show, uh, the Lenape people have a kind of native artifact that can make people walk through walls based on this story. So I don't know if that's something you would be willing to share about or explain, um, but that yeah, was... Um... I, you know, the story itself, the name of the story, um, is recorded from the uh, early 1900s by a Lenape um, uh, writer, historian. His name is uh, uh, Richard Adams, and uh, I believe he was from the Bartlesville, Oklahoma community. He wrote several books. relatively brief recording stories, recording certain values, and also basically talking about what was happening to the Lenape people at that time in uh, in and around Bartlesville, Oklahoma. And one of the stories that he preserved uh, is in his 1905 book, Legends of the Delaware Indians and Picture Writing, and and it is the, the, the alternate name is The Man They Cannot Hold. Now, there are two things about this story. One is, I don't know how ancient it is, because some of the writings that Richard Adams put in his book represented the Delaware people in that area at that time. He made no claim to them being particularly ancient. They may have been derived during the travels west or even once they settled in Oklahoma. There's no particular date associated with the story other than the fact that we know that it at least hails from the end of the 18th, very early 19th century, uh, excuse me, the end of the 19th, very early 20th century. But it has nothing to do with what you're describing with the rock and invisibility and anything like that, um, at least not the way that he preserved the story. And I'm unfamiliar. I can't say there is no story that doesn't have invisibility involved with the rock because certainly I don't know every Lenape story that's out there. But I'm unfamiliar with that, and it sounds more like what I've heard about Harry Potter than, <laughs> um, you know, the, 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 the Lenape stories that are older. And the story, as preserved by, um, by Adams, to me, and I could be wrong, but to me, does not appear to be particularly ancient. I believe it's legitimate. I think that everything he put in his book was legitimate and, and representative of the stories being told at that time. But when we think about ancient stories, we're thinking about stories that probably hail from a time period 
during the um, early migratory period or even prior to that. And some of the elements in this story just appear that maybe they're not um, very ancient. Uh, yeah. 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 Um, I didn't mean to interrupt. I just, like I said, I wanted to, yeah, agree and say that it seems that our, our TV show is science fiction and they just kind of take a basic idea and adapt it. Um, but that's what I was trying to, you know, suss out is just, you know, how much adaptation there was and how, you know, careful we might want to be about referencing the quote unquote, like, inspiration material that was surely quite different. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I know that, um, often there is literary license taken when, when, uh, things are, you know, put, put in shows or plays or whatever. But, uh, some of the, the more traditional stories that we have, they're considered particularly special to us and they're the property of the Lenape communities. Uh, this particular story, I think, may be unique to Bartlesville, I'm not sure, but just looking at it and some of the elements within it and having the feeling that it probably does not date from much longer before the time period that Adams wrote it down, um, it probably is is, is one that, that is, is part of their heritage out there, and you don't want to mess with those things. Yeah, absolutely, which is my thought, too, is if there's anything I, you know, shouldn't, uh, you know, ask, but I won't ask it. It's not my place. Well, no, you can ask the question. I just think that the use of the story and changing it and then still using the name of it as it was uh, written down in, in according to Richard Adams, but changing so many of the details uh, is cultural misappropriation. Absolutely, yeah. Um, thank you so much for, like I said, for sh sharing that and, and discussing it, even though uh, the the reason I come to you with these questions is from such a misappropriated source. Um, I don't have much else to ask. Of course, if there's anything else you would like to say, uh, please do. My only other thought would be if there are any um, nonprofit groups or information uh, kind of outreach groups that you would recommend, uh, either just that people look into or donate to or learn about, I would absolutely be happy to, you know, mention those uh, for you. Well, um, my tribe has uh, two nonprofits that do take donations. One is dedicated to social services and the other is dedicated to economic development. Both are 501c3 organizations and one is Nanticoke Lenny Lenape Indians of New Jersey and the other is NLT Community Development Corporation. Both uh, can be reached through our tribe, and uh, our tribal uh, website is nanticoke-lenape-tribalnation.org. And we are um, – there's also a GoFundMe presence, and off the top of my head I cannot recall, but I'm sure if you go to the GoFundMe, if you, ser if you search it, you'll find us. And we are very happy to receive donations to support the programs that we have for our people and the economic development efforts. Absolutely. Um, thank you so much. Was there anything that has come up that you haven't got to mention or would want, uh, if we're discussing this kind of misappropriated show, that you would want to make sure we say or point out? Well, one of the big ways that, our, that culture is misappropriated, not just the Lenape culture, but many different cultures, 
uh, we we see this in two different ways. One is the sports mascots that mm-hmm. uh, encourage the stereotypical behavior and also the use of of regalia, some items of which are sacred to us. And it, and even though people think that they're honoring us, it turns into uh, stereotypical mocking. And many tribes find this to be problematic. The American Psychological Association indicated that it actually does psychological harm to Native children and to non-Native youth that perpetuate some of these images. It actually does harm to them, too. Um, the National Congress of American Indians has taken a stand against it. The Alliance of Colonial Era Tribes has taken a stand against it. My own tribal uh, tribe and tribal confederations has taken a stand against it. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're interested in educating people so that they understand the harm that's done and, and, and how some of the um, names that are used and, and behaviors that are encouraged because of these mascots are actually racist. Uh, the other item is actually related to the use of our regalia and the misappropriation of our ceremonies and how, you know, so many modern age gurus and uh, utilize that and, and it winds up being a mockery. People uh, wearing supposed regalia and playing Indian um, from from Halloween to costume parties to mock ceremonies is very insulting. And some of the things that people will wear casually, like a costume, actually are, are items that are sacred, sometimes unique to families or clans, and sometimes have to be earned uh, uh, by individuals through a lifetime. So that's, a, that's something that there needs to be more understanding and education about. Absolutely. Um, thank you so, so much, like I said, for your generosity in answering these questions and, you know, speaking about something that is you know, not not the best in many ways. I just can't thank you enough for, you know, kind of being willing to, to share a more truthful perspective for us. Well, it's my pleasure, and I thank you for your interest and your, your willingness to, to listen. Oh, of course. So thank you very much, and if that's all, um, I will wish you a wonderful rest of your weekend. You also. Take care. It was good talking to you. Yes, thanks. Bye. Bye-bye.